Welcome to the 36th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's also a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, can now be pre-ordered through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast, and you can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, this has been a week of great extremes. Almost every piece of information has either been spectacular, almost unimaginable, even a short time ago, or it's been distressing and a potential setback and roadblock to ending this pandemic. When it comes to the vaccine, the success has been remarkable. In over 90% of states, all residents aged 16 and over are now eligible for a COVID-19 shot. This is two weeks earlier than President Biden's original proclamation that it aimed for May 1st. Of course, in many geographies, people are still facing a shortage of appointments. We can expect that, that that barrier will fall relatively quickly, and to date, Half of all adult Americans, 18 and over, or about 40% of the total population, have received at least one shot. The only country with a higher vaccination rate is Israel. And more than 80% of adults, 65 years and older, have gotten a vaccine dose, as have 80% of school staff and child care workers. Furthermore, the United States is on track to have 400 million doses available by the end of July, with over 3 million vaccine doses being administered daily, it would be hard, Jeremy, to imagine a better scenario for putting this pandemic behind us. But on the other hand, the problems and potential future risks are alarming. Despite the number of people vaccinated, not only are new cases rising, but hospitalizations are as well, although not nearly to the peaks of several months ago. Most likely the spike reflects spring break for college students and for families of younger kids. In addition, the B117 variant that originated in the United Kingdom has become the most common strain in the United States, according to the CDC, and concerns remain about a future mutation making the virus resistant to the currently available vaccines. Fortunately, so far, that hasn't happened. A continued problem is that the population vaccinated is disproportionately the healthier, more affluent Americans with minorities and individuals who are homebound, homeless, and working lower paying jobs lagging. And of course, there's continued vaccine hesitancy, threatening that our nation will hit a wall with plenty of vaccine, but without additional people wanting to receive it. Finally, there are the issues with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. As we said on the show, it started with the New Jersey plant 
that ended up contaminating 15 million doses of vaccine and had to discard them. And now, as almost all listeners know, there are cases of vascular thrombosis that have placed the use of the vaccine on what is being called by the FDA a pause. Not only will this slow the overall rollout, but it will disproportionately impact the part of the population for whom a single dose would be easiest, including individuals living in places where administering a vaccine that requires storage and transportation, a, vaccine, a transportation methodology that's expensive and requires very low temperature freezers proves impossible. We can expect that over the next month, the gap between the haves and the have-nots will widen. Robbie, speaking of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's pretty much all we've heard people talking about for the most part, and we've received dozens of questions about it. What's going on? Can you update listeners? Jeremy, as listeners are aware, we've been talking to Coronavirus The Truth for over a month now about the difficulties that AstraZeneca has had with its vaccine. Now the same issues are showing up with the J&J &J vaccine. The issue is a very rare type of blood clot in the large blood vessels draining from the brain. The problem is called venous situs thrombosis. Of the six patients diagnosed with this complication, all were women between the age of 18 and 48. So far, one has died, one is in critical condition, and a third remains hospitalized. In each case, the complication happened between six and 13 days after vaccination. What's strange about this venous obstruction is that the unexpected vascular clotting that's happened is occurring in conjunction with the reduced number of platelets. These are the disc-shaped blood cell fragments that are required to stop bleeding. You'd normally expect a high number of platelets in a process leading to thrombosis, not a reduced number. What a decrease in platelets most often produces is uncontrolled bleeding, not vascular occlusion. So far, scientists have hypothesized what's, what's causing this problem, but there are no firm conclusions. It's possible they say that the low count in platelets could result from so many having been used to occlude these very large vessels. As a result, very few would be left. It's also possible that the same immune response that is leading to the vascular occlusion is also damaging the platelets. We see a similar type of process with similar findings happening on rare occasions after the administration of the blood thinner heparin. Scientists aren't sure at this point of the exact pathogenesis or how best to treat it. In response, the FDA recommended last Tuesday against the use of the vaccine on a temporary basis Pending review by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that group met the next day and it said it didn't have enough information to determine the relative risk. As such, it didn't decide whether to recommend continuation of use of the vaccine, recommend discontinuation of it, or limit it to certain populations of patients. It plans to meet again in the future, most likely by the end of this week. With that as background, let's look at the scientific details at a deeper level. First, how great is the risk? It's true that these six cases and maybe a seventh happened following 7 million patients being vaccinated. That's the reason some people are talking about it being a one in a million chance. 
Although statistically this is true, that conclusion isn't exactly right. Since the problem seems only to occur in women of a younger age, we need to ask what's the risk for those individuals in this category, as opposed to those who are not, as an example, men and the elderly. And the answer so far is that the risks are completely different. It's not one in a million for women 18 to 48, but much higher. Women in this bracket have received approximately 20% of the J&J vaccine, and as such, their risk would be at least five times greater. And if we're going to compare risks of dying, then you can't use overall averages. You need to use the lower mortality for people in this age bracket. And then of course, most people won't get COVID in their future, but all people that we're talking about will get the vaccine. And as such, the danger of being vaccinated with this specific medication in women of this particular age is much higher than one in a million. But having said that, the vaccine is still safer for women, even in this age group, than the risk of getting COVID and dying from it. But the pros versus the cons are not as astronomically different as the media would portray. And of course, there are two alternative vaccines, the Moderna and Pfizer, that have yet to demonstrate this complication that women could avail themselves of. I suspect the implications of these multiple issues are what led the committee not to decide. The issue that made them delay the vote may have come down to an inability to agree whether to encourage everyone to have this vaccine or simply discourage those most likely to be affected, women between 18 and 48. The reality, of course, is that once you discourage even a small population, a lot of other people will avoid the option, even if they're men outside the age bracket. We've seen exactly that phenomenon happen across Europe when it came to the AstraZeneca vaccine. And of course, that raises another question. Why is it that this problem with these two vaccines are happening, but it's not occurring in the other two, at least so far? Once again, we can't be sure. But the common denominator is that these two vaccines are ones that carry the RNA inside an adenovirus, not inside simply a lipid envelope as the Moderna and the Pfizer do. Based on this observation, some researchers have hypothesized that the vascular occlusion is triggered by an immune response to the adenoviruses. But as logical as that seems, there's a confounding fact. The viruses used, although related as adenovirus, are genetically very distinct. As such, there would have to be a protein that they shared from way back in their history that is responsible for these occlusions, and that protein has yet to be identified. About half of the listeners who wrote in wanted to know what I would do if I were on the panel. First, let me reiterate what I've said on previous shows. I'm not a vaccine expert. And in this case, I don't have all the details that the panel members did. With those caveats, regardless of the decision that our group made, I would have recommended we communicate more decisively than this group did. Just telling Americans they were putting off the decision to an unknown future, I believe is a prescription to undermine, not build on nation's trust. 
Possibly I would have said, the United States has an inadequate information technology system left over from the last century, and we're going to pause for 10 days so that every doctor in the US who has seen a case or might have been a case can contact us. I'd add that this particular time frame was chosen based on the fact that 52% of the vaccinations that have been given with the J&J &J vaccine were administered between March 31st and April 13th. That's the day the pause began. And as such, we still need to wait two weeks to be sure that we've identified all of the cases that might happen since they can occur as late as two weeks after the vaccination itself. And with this information, the CDC, along with the NIH, will investigate each and every case thoroughly and quickly. As a result, we are planning to provide a definitive recommendation no later than May 1st. This explanation would have been clear about why we can't make the decision today, the next steps, and the projected decision date. I also may have told Americans that we'll be delaying the decision for a second reason. Preventing blood vessel occlusion in the face of diminished platelets is tricky and potentially dangerous. As such, we're going to wait two weeks to make sure we understand the best way to treat this problem should it arise before we put anyone else at risk. And we will share that information with all of the doctors in the United States. And finally, with all of the data, I might have urged the committee to take a definitive step based on what we knew at the time. To that end, we could have approved the vaccine for men over age 60, as some nations in Europe have done, and advise younger individuals that for the next two weeks, they should wait or avail themselves of one of the other approved vaccines. At that time, the panel could meet and narrow the restrictions based on the totality of data, possibly lowering the age down to 50 and including men of all ages, assuming the current statistics on who is affected don't change. At that time, I would emphasize the reality that is not being discussed today, that venous sinus thrombosis also happens after being stricken with COVID-19. And according to researchers from Oxford, England, it occurs at a rate nearly 40 times greater than anything we've seen with the vaccine. When the committee's decision or rather non-decision was released, I heard commentators question whether the pause would lower or raise vaccine hesitancy. Those who thought it would be positive argued that the pause would instill confidence in the concerns of the FDA for safety and the regulators who were meeting to make the advising decisions. I disagree. When a decision of this nature is made and the justification is that there's simply not enough data and there's no clear explanation for what's missing and how long it will be until it's gathered, then confidence is eroded. When people don't really understand why a decision is being delayed, they conclude that either the committee is hiding something or that simply the members don't have the courage needed to make the best choice. It's perceived as a sign of fear, not scientific wisdom. Most likely further guidance will be provided by the end of the week. However, regardless of the committee's decision, given what has transpired, second guessing will be inevitable. Fortunately, our country has enough doses of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines 
nationwide to immunize 200 million Americans by President Biden's 200th day in office and 300 million Americans by sometime this summer. However, for those populations of patients who are having trouble accessing a vaccination center, particularly those who are homebound or rural areas, this will be a major setback. In the interim, according to the CDC, anyone who received the J&J vaccine who has severe headaches, abdominal pain, shortness of breath, leg swelling, or unexpected easy bruising should contact their doctor and report that they'd received the specific vaccine. Robbie, in our last show, you talked about research that showed how different the views of anti-vaxxers are from people who are vaccine hesitant. Several listeners wanted you to expand on what we know about anti-vaxxers when it comes to COVID-19 specifically. Jeremy, the most interesting data comes from the Center for Countering Digital Hate at Anti-Vax Watch. It found that two-thirds of anti-vaccine content on social media, specifically Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, comes from 12 individuals, each with large followings. They reviewed 812,000 posts over a six-week time period from February 1st to March 16th, and 65% of the content came from one of those 12 accounts. With the CEOs of these social media companies testifying to Congress over the past few weeks, stricter regulation or more consistent implementation of the policies that exist may come in the future. We'll have to see whether these companies have the willingness to implement effective solutions despite the reduced revenue that would follow or whether they will be forced by Congress to do so. Robbie, with so much fear being expressed over the safety and efficacy of specific vaccines, I've heard many people say they're comfortable with Pfizer but refuse to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I've heard people say that Pfizer is slightly better than Moderna or vice versa, and that they only want one and they're gonna you know, go hunt that one at all costs. What are your thoughts and how is it translating to people's actions relative to being vaccinated? Jeremy, it's amazing how fast the landscape is evolving. Two weeks ago, the majority of people who were in the vaccine wait and see group said that if they could get the one-dose J&J vaccine, that might tip the scales and lead them to be vaccinated. Now things are different. At the time, overall, 56% of all unvaccinated Americans said they definitely or probably would proceed if they could access the J&J vaccine compared to only 47% for Moderna and 43% for Pfizer. And in response to this data, many vaccine websites and centers began to offer people a choice. Vaccine Finder, a website that identifies open vaccine appointments in communities, allows its users to select the particular vaccine desired. And public stores provide specific booking appointments for the Moderna vaccine on some days, and other appointment slots for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine on different days. Choice seems an important option for those who remain hesitant, and it's likely to be even greater with the recent J&J pause we just discussed. Even though this as yet undecided group only represents 28% of Americans, its members could be the ones to tip the scales to achieve herd immunity. 
Jeremy, overall, all three vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, and J&J, are extremely effective in protecting people against COVID-19 and relatively safe. When I was vaccinated, I didn't worry about which one was being administered that day, but I was simply grateful that I was on my way to being protected. I think the one concern right now that I would have were I a woman in the 18 to 48 group would be with the J&J vaccine. And I'd be wanting to wait at least two weeks for additional information to come out. But outside of that category, I would not hesitate to proceed with any of the three, whichever was most available, the soonest. The speed at which these mRNA vaccines were developed along with their outstanding efficacy, exceeded everyone's wildest expectations. Many experts and media sources early on saying it was impossible to get something this fast. What do you think is the impact of what we learned from the development and rollout of these mRNA vaccines? How does this change vaccine science and development for the future? And what implications does this have for... And what implications does this have for other viruses we've been fighting for ages, such as malaria? Jeremy, the development of mRNA vaccines is a huge advance for medical practice. I think of it as being similar to when Gutenberg perfected the printing press and of equal significance. Scientists today can rapidly sequence the genetic code of viruses. You may remember it only took a few weeks between identification of COVID-19 infections in China and the publications of the exact genetic makeup of the responsible coronavirus. And with this information, laboratories can produce the messenger RNA that's used by viruses to instruct cells to produce specific proteins. And by injecting the mRNA into people, whether by surrounding it with a lipid envelope or embedding it in another virus, that doesn't cause disease in humans, an immune response is generated, capable of attacking any organism dependent on the specific protein, such as the coronavirus's spike protein. The biggest challenge for virologists has been identifying the best proteins to target. And the reality of virus mutation is that they can change so fast that the immune response that was created becomes ineffective. As you point out, work is advancing on a broad range of next generation vaccines. These include ones aimed to develop the so-called universal flu vaccine that potentially could protect people against multiple variants each year. They're developing vaccines that can protect against malaria, a disease that kills over a million people a year, mostly children, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And there are vaccines that are being developed that target a variety of virus-induced cancers. Moreover, this technology could be applied to treating a wide variety of other cancers, ones that aren't virus-induced, but have a specific and unique protein associated with them. The traditional way to produce a vaccine required growing in the laboratory and then experimenting to find the exact way to make it just weak enough not to get people sick, but strong enough to evoke an effective immune response. mRNA technology offers the potential 
to shorten what had been a five-year process at a minimum down to less than 12 months as was accomplished with COVID-19 and create vaccines that don't have the potential to lead to infection. Finding the right proteins and making sure the immunity generated won't harm people will be the focus of scientists in the future. Our body's immune systems are remarkable. They're capable of producing powerful antibodies in a matter of days. So this is a very exciting new frontier. At the same time, Jeremy, there's still much we need to learn before the theoretical applications translate into day-to-day -day clinical practice. Robbie, we've talked on this show about the psychological impact of social distancing. What do we know about the psychological impact of actually getting COVID-19? Jeremy, you're absolutely right. There are psychological consequences from being infected as well as psychological complications that happen from social distancing. According to a paper in Lancet Psychiatry, among people who recover from COVID-19, one third of them experience either mental health or neurologic disease. Six months after having COVID-19, anxiety and depression were especially common in the research that was published. One in eight, one in eight individuals without any mental health issues previously were diagnosed with them following infection. Of concern, those who developed mental health issues were not necessarily the patients with the most severe diseases. At this point, doctors don't know if these psychological symptoms are a result of the virus itself or secondary to the stress of being sick and the associated social isolation that quarantine requires. However, the long-term impact of the pandemic will be far and wide, even if we're able to eliminate this coronavirus, the consequences of COVID-19 will last for decades to come. Robbie, we're hearing a lot about this coronavirus B117 from the United Kingdom. There's been a lot of fear about it going around. Um, what do we know about its transmissibility and lethality and how do vaccines work against it? As we said earlier in the show, this variant is now the dominant one in the United States. And there's no doubt that it's more transmissible than the original strain. What this means is that rather than a person with the virus giving it to three others on average, this new strain might lead to one person giving it to four or five individuals. Most likely this variant doesn't produce more severe illness or kill people who become infected more often. And this makes biological sense. A virus that spreads more easily ends up becoming more prevalent than one that spreads slowly. But a virus that kills more people is less, not more transmissible. Researchers aren't sure about the other two major variants, the one from South Africa and the one from Brazil. Given how many people are dying in Brazil from this P1 variant, there's some fear that not only is it more transmissible, but it also may be more deadly, not by evolutionary intent, but happenstance. 
And this could have lethal consequences should it gain a foothold in the United States. The vaccines still work in the same way. They're designed to identify and attack the spikes that come out of the coronavirus, and they do it in multiple different ways, attacking different proteins on these spikes. But as the spikes themselves change, as the proteins are shifted, secondary to genetic mutations in the RNA, then progressively the vaccine becomes less effective with a greater opportunity for the virus itself to become ultimately completely resistant. Fortunately, as of today, that has not happened. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. I keep hearing positive feedback on us. So what do you got for us this week? Hey, Jeremy, the really good news is how effective the current vaccines are. Of the 66 million Americans who have been fully vaccinated, there have only been 5,800 cases in which people have tested positive for the virus. That means your chance of getting sick, or at least sick enough to consider getting a COVID test, is less than one hundredth of one percent, with the equivalent of one person in every 20,000. Moreover, the people who became infected, a third were asymptomatic, and they were probably discovered as a result of routine testing for their work. And in total, only 74 people amongst 66 million have died. 5,800 out of 66 million means that if you're vaccinated, you're not 100% protected, but the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor. And these numbers align with the original research that reported a 95% efficacy rate. What listeners need to understand is that we are in a long-term war, not a short-term battle. And over the past year, the virus has kept defeating us. For people who became sick, we were relatively powerless. Of all the drugs tested and touted, only dexamethasone, a commonly used steroid, was shown to save any lives. Every other medication either didn't work at all or had a minuscule impact on the infection. But going forward, we now have this powerful weapon called vaccination, one that will be hard for this virus to overcome. We may see annual waves of infection as the virus mutates, similar to what happens with the flu, but we can relatively easily and quickly create booster vaccines that target the new genetic variants. And in this way, this virus should be less problematic over time than even the flu because it tends to mutate slower than influenza. In baseball, great players are called five-tool players. They do multiple things like hitting for power, hitting for average, fielding, and base running with the best. This vaccine seems to be similar. It's effective, safe, easy to manufacture, and easy to modify. Assuming that holds up, that's not good news, Jeremy. It's great news. One more piece of good news. Last week, the world passed a huge milestone. Over 1 billion doses of vaccine had been produced, and the projections are that by May, and the projections are that by the end of May, the world will be at 2 billion doses of vaccine having been manufactured. 
Having said that, there are 7 billion people in the world. Moreover, as we discussed in our last show, China remains the world's number one supplier of other countries, having exported 166 million doses, while the U.S. has sent out only 3 million. You pointed out the risk that is created for our country relative to global relations as a consequence of how other nations will see this relative generosity or lack thereof. When I look at the post-coronavirus era, I don't believe this will be good news for the United States. Rabbi Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, said booster shots would most likely be needed. Uh, why did he say that and how often would we need them? And is there any information on when, whether we would need boosters from Moderna or J&J or anything like that as well? Jeremy, there are two reasons why booster shots could be needed. The first is due to fading immunity. So far, the current vaccines seem to maintain their effectiveness for at least six months. And listeners should understand, I use six months because that's how long we've been administering them. It could end up they provide immunity for six years. But at this point, we can't be sure. I think Mr. Borla's prediction referred more to his view of mutant variants continuing to arise and boosters having to be given to aid in the protection provided as random genetic changes happen. This is the situation with the flu. And today, Moderna announced that it also would be encouraging a vaccine or providing a vaccine later this fall. As of yet, we don't yet have data on J&J. Mr. Borla, of course, was speculating at this point, as were the leaders from Moderna. And, they all, and both companies want to be sure that people have heard it from their leaders so that no one concludes that something unexpected has happened when Moderna or Pfizer announce that the booster shots are available and people should come to receive them. If I had to guess, Jeremy, we're probably looking at an annual need to provide modified vaccine or at least a booster shot capable of controlling whatever variant exists, at least until we get this virus under control and the number of cases, the number of replications, and therefore the probability or the possibility of mutation diminishes. And at that point, hopefully the vaccine will be stable for a prolonged period of time. I mean as you know, living in Iowa City, I'm very interested in people's hesitancy to get the vaccine. There are cities like the one I live in where most people couldn't wait to be vaccinated. And then in other areas that are more rural, there's still a lot of reluctance. Has the brouhaha over the J&J vaccine affected people's perception of vaccine safety? Great question. And the answer is yes. But the longer one is more nuanced. When it comes to Moderna and Pfizer, the percentage of people who feel the vaccine is very or somewhat safe remains very high at 59% and 58% respectively. This is the data that's similar to the past. For AstraZeneca, it remains relatively low at 27%. But compared to polls from a few weeks ago, 
the perception about J&J vaccine is the one that has shifted significantly, declining from 52% thinking it is very or somewhat safe down to 37%. Similarly, the percentage of people who feel that Moderna and Pfizer are very or somewhat unsafe remains low at 18 and 19% respectively. The concern about AstraZeneca is obviously much higher at 27%. For J&J, the impact of the pause has been to increase the percentages of people that see the vaccine as very or somewhat unsafe from 26% up to 39%. Putting this data into context, it is very edifying. People perceive an intervention such as getting a vaccine with a very rare but terrifying complication as being unsafe while they see the risk from a viral infection they may or may not get as less dangerous, even when the actual numbers are reversed. This errant perception is very consistent with the behavioral economic concept of availability bias. Information on risks that are more recent and reported more broadly by the media is seen as more threatening than data on risks that had been presented in the past. And the J&J reports have dominated the headlines whereas mortality from COVID-19, although still between 500 and 1,000 people per day, is relatively ignored. The part of this research that to me was most surprising was how little negative crossover there was in people's perception of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, despite respondents' diminished trust in the one manufactured by Johnson & Johnson. Jeremy, I'm hearing a growing anger between individuals who feel it is selfish of people to refuse to be vaccinated, thereby slowing your return to normal, and those who feel it's selfish of people to restrict the freedoms of others. If you had the chance to speak to each group, what would you say in order to close that gap? Robbie, uh, this is a, a tough one for me because I have very close friends in both camps. So I hear arguments from both sides consistently. Both sides are very passionate and have very good arguments for why they feel the way they do. And I think the thing I find most concerning is that division and hatred. It feels almost like they're talking about enemies on the other side of the war, even though they're friends and family members. And honestly, that terrifies me. I remember when George W. Bush was president and I was in college and we went to war with Iraq. You could have deeply passionate and sometimes very heated debates with friends and family members about whether the Iraq war was justified. And you know what? You could still get along afterwards. You could still go grab a beer and be friends with someone after such a debate. You wouldn't have family members who refuse to talk to you or block you from their phone if you disagreed with them. And sadly, it's not like that anymore. The nation is so divided over everything, it's heartbreaking. I have seen so many people who have lost friends or have family members who want nothing to do with them anymore simply for having different opinions on politics or policy issues, such as how the government either under Trump or Biden has handled coronavirus. There's also a lot of division how the various governors have handled the pandemic across the country. What I would say to both sides of the aisle is this. You both want the same thing. You both want a return to normalcy. You both want to go to baseball games and concerts again. You both want to be able to go to the store without a mask on. 
please, please, please stop viewing the other side as some sort of enemy. We're all Americans and we're supposed to have varying viewpoints and we're supposed to listen to others' opinions as well. If we don't listen to others and try to understand where they're coming from, we're only going to make the division worse. If you stop being friends with someone who disagrees with you or block a family member on your phone, you're only going to further entrench them in their beliefs and make them feel that you too are entrenched in what they view as incorrect or uneducated viewpoints. I actually had two friends, uh, one on either side of the aisle, who got into an argument about something related to COVID and they asked me for my opinion because of my relationship with you and, and knowledge I've gained from doing this show with you. Turns out it was a topic we had previously covered on the show like a week or two before, and they were both wrong. They were both misinformed. They were, one was going from something they heard on, uh, I believe it was CNN or MSNBC, one of those, and the other one was going off of something they had learned on Fox News. And they were both wrong. They were both, they both understood facts out of context. We've talked a lot about the amount of misinformation in not just the mainstream media, but just in the public as general on both sides going on with the pandemic and how dangerous it is. Take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example. If you watched the news last week from either side of the aisle, you would think that you had maybe a 1 in 50 chance of having a serious complication. This is way off, and it's irresponsible reporting by the media, like much of the reporting for the pandemic has been. Fear cells, division cells. Get your COVID news from reputable sources and real experts that don't have any sort of bias or agenda. We pride ourselves on this show on trying to remove the spin and present accurate information and updates without any sort of agenda. We don't hesitate to call out either political party, the media, or anything when they're doing something wrong. I think the best way to close the gap between both groups is to tell them, first, to get news from a reliable source that has no agenda. So that means a show like ours or other actual healthcare experts so that they are well-informed. Have dialogue with people you disagree with. Get your, you know, and not only get your news from a reputable source, but listen to what multiple diverse uh, viewpoints are saying as well. Neither group is being selfish and wanting a return to normalcy. They just want to go about it in a completely different way. And I think a big, big part of that is because of said division and all the misinformation going on. I think if you fight that misinformation and kind of try to put an end to that, that is how we'll close that gap and actually go about ending the pandemic. Robbie, many of our listeners are parents of children. They appreciated your response to my questions on the last podcast about whether to vaccinate my son and wanted me to ask if you had any new knowledge this week about vaccinating kids. Jeremy, with older adults now being vaccinated at a high rate and mortality in the demographic decreasing, attention is increasingly being focused on kids. We're in the process of dropping the recommended age for vaccination way down, although it's likely to take several months for all the regulatory pieces to fall into place. Already Pfizer's asked health agencies to allow its vaccine to be given to adolescents. Part of the thinking is that to a large extent, this demographic tends to more closely resemble the risks seen in adults than young children. Most likely regulators will grant authorization for anyone 12 and up. In the study the company did of 2,200 kids aged 12 to 15, there were 18 cases of COVID-19. All of them occurred in the placebo group and no cases occurred in individuals given the actual vaccine. 
although the risk of severe infection in this age group is relatively low, the seemingly complete safety and effectiveness of this vaccine in this population is likely to earn Pfizer the approval. Having said that, with ongoing J&J issues, everything is a bit less certain than it would have been a month ago when it comes to the FDA. In addition to this study, researchers are testing the safety and efficacy of the vaccines in even younger kids. Stanford is an example. We're running a clinical trial for kids age six months through 11 years. Interesting research was published on the question of why kids rarely become severely ill from COVID-19. According to the scientists from Albert Einstein and Yale University, children have a robust innate immune system capable of fending off the virus. They compared nasal swabs from 12 children and 27 adults who came to the emergency department with symptoms of COVID-19. And the researchers were able to identify evidence of protective immune cells in the nasal cavities of kids, as well as what's called cytokines, proteins such as interferon, which have a protective effect for people. After these patients were admitted to the hospital, none of the 12 children even required oxygen, while seven of the adults did, and four of them died. Putting the pieces together, children appear to have an innate immune response that is capable of stopping the infection very early in the process while the virus is still located in the upper airway and before it can travel down and infect the lungs. Robbie, we've talked about the issue of obesity in relation to COVID on our show for quite some time. Uh, we've also expressed frustration with the politicization of the pandemic and how the media on both sides have spun it. We have discussed how consumers of left-leaning media thought COVID-19 was much more deadly than dangerous than it actually was, while consumers on conservative-leaning media thought the virus was nothing more than the common cold. And Robbie, it, it seems like more and more people are starting to talk about these things that we've been talking about for a while. So it, so it feels great to have been ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues. Last week, liberal political commentator and comedian Bill Maher on his show had a monologue expressing extreme frustration with how the mainstream news media has spun the pandemic to fit their agenda in a way that was spreading a ton of misinformation and fear. He ended the now popular monologue asking, why has there not been more communication from government health officials or even a, a major national campaign about better preventative health? Robbie, we saw wear a mask, stay at home, and get a vaccine talked about and plastered everywhere. Robbie, why haven't public health experts had a campaign about how exercising, eating right, losing weight, and overall healthier lifestyle was one of the best things people could do to protect themselves against a severe case of COVID. I have seen some pushback to this saying, well, you know, telling somebody to lose weight wouldn't do enough in time to prevent them from getting an illness. But if, so, if there was something about that in March or April, wouldn't have had an impact on someone getting the virus six months later or a year later. Uh, and, and worst case scenario, you're helping to prevent them from getting severe illnesses related to obesity down the road. Is this something that public health experts should have done? And do you view this as one of uh, the major failures of America's fight against COVID-19? 
Jeremy, I wrote on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients to a moderate extent over this specific issue. As we said earlier in the show, our nation is excellent at rising to crisis, but we do a poor job of the basics that would allow people and our country to avoid a crisis in the first place. There's plenty of information about the importance of diet, exercise, being healthy. Doctors learn in medical school and they see the recommendations of various organizations around preventive health. They know that chronic disease contributes tremendously to mortality in the United States, to unaffordability of healthcare, and something gets in the way. It's more than just the systemic issues that our country and our healthcare system face. It's the culture. It's a culture that doesn't value prevention. Because if you value prevention, physicians would do a better job. And if our nation valued prevention, we'd create the opportunities for people to be able to eat better food rather than promoting junk food. We would have banned smoking. One in six Americans still smoke despite all of the information that's available about lung cancer, chronic disease, and a variety of other illnesses that happen in smokers at a dramatically higher rate than in anyone else. We would not see one in three Americans either having diabetes or being pre-diabetic. If we had a different culture, we would have been better prepared for this pandemic. As you say, 88% of people who died had two or more chronic diseases, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, or chronic heart and lung disease. We could have prevented many of these problems. We could have had people become healthier. My view is that what we have in the United States today is a sick care system, not a healthcare system. But it's not my original view. In the book, I trace back to 1934, the realization that we had opportunities to improve the health and the lives of people. And now, almost a century later, we have not accomplished that. Our nation is last in longevity among the industrialized nations. We spend nearly twice as much as anyone else and what we get for our money is a failure 
a failure to keep the American populace as healthy as it can be. We lag other countries by as much as five years. We tell ourselves we're the best healthcare system in the world, and we don't. There are issues with insurance, greedy drug and device manufacturing companies, failures at hospitals, but I believe that what overlays all of it is a broken culture, one that allows us, one that allows health policy experts, one that allows physicians to talk about opportunities to improve health, or to invest our time, our energy, to provide the esteem, the respect to those things that seem to bring patients back from the brink of death, rather than those things that can consistently keep them away from the edge. I'm hoping out of COVID-19, and the post-coronavirus era, that we will learn and do better, but culture changes slowly. And between you and me, Jeremy, and all of our listeners, I'm concerned and I encourage all of us to push hard, to push forward, and once again, make American healthcare the best in the world. Europe is looking like a major problem with cases spiking and hospitals being full. And yet it seems to be falling further and further behind the US. What's going on in Europe? Jeremy, it's interesting to see how well the US is doing today and how far behind most nations in Europe seem to be. This is a huge reverse of what was happening last fall. It is a valuable lesson for multiple reasons. The first is that success in battling a viral pandemic is far more than the excellence of medical care provided and includes political, social, and cultural issues. At times, these forces have worked intensely against the United States, and you and I have castigated our leaders for their failures. But what many would label bizarre, I'm going to credit the combination of President Trump and President Biden together for the current success. As I point out in my upcoming book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, what our nation does well when it comes to healthcare are two things. First, we rise better than other nations in the face of crisis. And second, we're able to successfully achieve partnerships between private and public interests. What I mean by this is the following. Today's success in vaccinating half of all American adults would not have happened without the efforts of both presidents. Specifically, Operation Warp Speed was a huge success at creating new vaccines capable of successfully generating immunity against a virus the world had never seen. Accomplishing that in the 12 months was nearly impossible. In order to maximize the probability President Trump invested heavily in private companies and hedged our nation's bets by investing in far more vaccine development efforts than we ever could use. 
Not only did that produce safe, effective vaccines, but it guaranteed a sufficient quantity to vaccinate our entire country. Other nations put their money on one vaccine or contracted for a minimal amount of supply, and today they're paying the price for their caution. President Biden inherited the success, and he took it to a much higher level through clear communication and a focus on the operational imperatives. His strategy was clear. Protect the most vulnerable first, and that meant frontline workers, the elderly, and people in nursing homes. When you're dealing with vaccines that require ultra-cold temperatures and must be administered within a few hours of freezing, this process is far more complex than people can imagine. And compared to the magnitude of the challenges, implementation has been excellent across the United States, far better than in nearly all European countries. The reality that our nation is administering over 3 million doses per day and has the potential to vaccinate 200 million people in less than six months is world-leading. Jeremy, you and I have talked about the opportunities that come with bipartisanship. I doubt that either the former or current president will acknowledge the work of the other. But as a bystander, I doubt we'd be where we are today on the verge of returning to a more normal world without the contributions of both President Trump and President Biden. As strange as that sentence sounds. On coronavirus, the truth, we don't hesitate to point out our leaders' failures, regardless of their political party. I believe it's equally important to highlight their successes on both sides of the political aisle at moments like this. I look forward to reading our listeners' comments, either through our website, robertpearlmd.com, or through our Fixing Healthcare website. Robbie, I think you just offended everyone. Uh, unfortunately, in today's media and today's landscape, it's 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 not popular to call out the, you know the other party or the viewpoint you disagree with for doing a good job. So I really appreciate you uh, you doing that. Thank you, Jeremy. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.